Kia ora, no mai ki te whare. Welcome to the House. I'm Johnny Blades. In the words of one MP, when talking about how select committees work, sometimes a bill comes before the committee and it needs very little work before it goes back to the House, while others need quite a bit of panel beating. In the latter category, we can easily fit the Therapeutic Products Bill, which this week passed its second reading, but not without some fiery debate. It's getting closer to the election, so some of that heat is expected. But this government bill, which provides a new regulatory framework for therapeutic products, that's medicines, medical devices, natural health products and active pharmaceutical ingredients, is a useful example of how legislation gets modified through a rigorous select committee process. And that process, in turn, can inform a quite robust debate. And this bill is nothing but another example of the coalition of chaos. It's another back-down bill. Could you imagine, days after the, the commentary comes back to the House, the Minister is already desperately putting up SOPs in defence and waving the white flag? Because the government knows they have got this wrong. National MP Matt Ducey is a member of the Health Select Committee, which examined the Therapeutic Products Bill, but was unable to reach agreement on whether to recommend that the bill be passed. That's partly because the 10-strong committee is evenly split between MPs from governing and non-governing parties. However, the committee recognised the depth of public concern over the bill and its proposed set of rules for regulating medicines and natural products, which was encapsulated in a petition presented to Parliament with over 5,000 signatures earlier this month. Now, the government member Sarah Pellet calls out, that's why we changed it. No, you changed it because Theresa Zane brought a petition of 6,500 signatures. She led a hikoi with Malcolm Mulholland from Patient Voice Aotearoa that turned up on this forecourt to protest against your bill. National was there. The Greens were there. ACT was there. Te Party Māori was there. Was Labour there? No. They weren't there because they knew they were wrong. And here they are now gloating. Oh, it's because of us those changes were made. If it was because of you, that would have not been in the bill in the first place. So the bill drew over 16,500 submissions in total. The vast majority of submitters were opposed to aspects of the bill. The Health Minister, Ayesha Verrill, acknowledged this during her second reading speech. Over 9,000 submissions focused on the inclusion of natural health products and called for their exclusion from the bill or that they be regulated in a risk-proportionate way. I also acknowledge that more than 700 submitters who expressed, concerned, expressed concerns about the bill's potential effect on rongoa Māori. When the Health Committee reported back to the House recently, the Government announced that small-scale NHP manufacturers would be excluded from the legislation as well as, as rongoa. The government intends to introduce a supplementary order paper to amend the bill during the uh, committee of the whole House debate. A number of NHP producers operate out of their homes and produce only a small quantity of goods. These are often sold locally, for example, at farmers' markets. I'm comfortable that the evidence available suggests these products don't pose a significant risk to public health. 
So the SOP will introduce changes so that small-scale natural health products won't need to will be able to be exempted from a product authorisation or manufacturing licence from the new regulator where their products are made and supplied in person to customers in New Zealand. So various amendments have been proposed to this legislation and these will be ultimately sorted through at the next stage of this bill's passage, the Committee of the Whole House. Amidst the tribal warfare in the debating chamber during the second reading, the Green Party MP Ricardo Menendez-Marsh offered a positive take on things. And other speakers have talked about of how, how this bill has generated a huge amount of public discourse. I think in some ways, um, while I know the National Party was talking about the Labour Party flip-flopping, what I want to frame it as is actually government responding to overwhelming feedback. Some of it remains unresolved, but what it shows is the power of the grassroots. It shows the power that the public actually has at guiding the direction of government legislation. This is how the Green Party has worked on several pieces of legislation historically, where, where I think we forget that actually the people have the power to, to pressure government into moving into the right direction. The bill passed its second reading by 74 votes to 42, with the Green Party and Te Pāti Māori voting with the government. Now, for a closer look at how select committees tweak a bill, here's Phil Smith. Earlier this month in Parliament, the Finance and Expenditure Select Committee sent a report back to the House with an unprecedented extra. The committee put on record their concern that, and I'm paraphrasing, some of the drafting instructions for the committee's amendments to the bill they were working on were not the ones they expected. Some departmental official had either made a huge mistake or had taken it into their head that they knew better than the MPs. It got me wondering how a committee does this. By what process do they decide what changes a bill needs and how do they track those decisions? So I asked the chair of the committee that caught the runaway bill, Labour MP Ingrid Leary. What happened a few weeks ago to my mind, is an example of the system working, where select committees, by their nature, uh, there's a bit of tension between the select committee process and the government or executive process, as it should be, because after all, Parliament is uh, the one that holds government to account, and the government is accountable to Parliament. So when a bill comes to select committee, uh, usually what happens first is there is an introduction to the bill, um, often with a set of slides made by the officials from the department presenting it, to give an overview to MPs about what the bill entails, what it's intending to do, how it works, and so on. Then the committee can decide if it's quite a technical bill, for example, that it would like to also get an independent advisor. Because the officials who will have been involved in the policy that led to the bill, they're available to give you advice, but sometimes you like a second opinion, right? Correct, and that's because um, officials who are working on policy are paid to look at policy in terms of um, if we follow this path, then that will happen. If we follow this other path, then that will happen. Sure. So they are um, apolitical by virtue of their job. However, what an independent advisor can do is um, provide independent advice and also, if it's a contentious area, can 
support the committee in being seen to be independent in its deliberations. Because, yeah, while the committee is both governing party and opposition MPs, none of you are a member of the executive, so you all want to be seen to be sort of outside that. It's not just about wanting to be seen outside it. It's about wanting to make sure that the legislation is fit for purpose and is in the best possible shape it can be. Sometimes bills come before us that need very little work and sometimes they need quite a lot of what I would call panel beating. And I think there's a, a real willingness from all political parties to make the legislation as good as possible. So when you've done all that you, and you've, you've had feedback from the public and you've got expert advice, then you go through the bill and the committee agrees together what it will ask the parliamentary drafters to change about the bill, right? You give them a list of instructions, is that correct? Correct. So one of the most thorough ways to do that, and something that I um, think should be a, a normal course of action really, is to work off a table of changes so that all members are very clear on uh, what is being suggested by submitters, what officials are suggesting should change, and why, or why they suggest it shouldn't change. When there is an independent advisor, they can also proffer those opinions. Often, actually, the independent advisor can work with the officials and they can come to an agreement because this is about what is rational in terms of having the bill meet its expectations and its intention rather than um, a, a kind of policy judgment. However, if there is conflicting advice, then it is up to the committee to make those decisions. So having that in a table format is very, very helpful. It also means that advisors can indicate what would be called technical changes, very small technical changes that can go to the drafters that wouldn't normally need to take up the committee's time. And again, having oversight from an independent advisor is very helpful to the committee in that respect. Does that always happen and does it work well? I think the whole process usually works very well. And if there are disagreements between officials and independent advisors or officials with each other or uh, MPs, officials and advisors, that is all natural tension in the system designed to flush out the best possible solution for that bill. And in that case, the decision is always made by the committee? Correct. By a majority vote, if not a consensus? Look, I think um, the New Zealand public can be very confident in the decisions that are made by select committees. There is always scope for further, you know, having a larger number of MPs, that would be great, or for having more time. Those are the two pressures. MPs are often time poor. But the quality of advice given to select committees across the board tends to be very high quality. And as long as MPs are doing their job and making sure they read all the material and engage with it, then I think the legislation that comes before the House is very good quality. Uh, I think we're very lucky with the level of resource that we have available to us and the quality of advice that we're given. That was Ingrid Leary, who is Chair of Parliament's Finance and Expenditure Committee. You've been listening to The House. It's a whakaranga koe ki te whare. This programme is produced with funding from Parliament's Office of the Clerk. Matawa.